Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Super excited to talk to this week's guest. Just an incredible, incredible story and an incredible individual. Before we get to that, uh, we've got some housekeeping to do and want to keep you guys in the loop on everything that's going on. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and uh, continue to give us guest suggestions. We get a lot of these guys, and we're actually surprised at how many we're getting because we didn't know that people wanted to tell their story so badly, but we love that you guys want to. So go to our website, shoot us an email, and let us know if you've got a great story to tell or know somebody with a great story to tell. Don't forget about our partnership with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com, once again, and uh, when you guys go do your normal Amazon shopping, they'll send us a portion of what you spend, and we can help donate that to veterans and veterans organizations. So make sure you keep going to HazardGround.com to do all your Amazon shopping. And we want to give a special shout-out to a listener, Bobby, who goes by at CluelessComedy3 on Twitter. Bobby recently donated to the podcast, actually our first donation in the uh, almost two years we've been doing this, but Bobby's an aspiring historian and a longtime listener and fan of the show, but more than just donating to the show, he wants people to remember to simply thank a vet or active duty service member for their service to America and our country. So we thank you, Bobby, for your donation and your request, and we also thank you for listening and supporting the show and supporting service members all over the world. Also wanted to thank those who are taking the time to listen and comment on YouTube. That feedback is always appreciated. Keep the comments coming. We read every single one of them and try to respond as fast as we can. So thanks for those. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review on iTunes as well. Those ratings help us out, grow the popularity of the show. And, of course, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All that out of the way. Super excited for this week's episode. Joining us this week is a former Marine sergeant who spent eight years in the Marine Corps, multiple deployments to Afghanistan. After his military career ended, he ended up becoming an award-winning journalist. He is currently a writer for Newsweek covering the Department of Defense, but you have seen his work featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Task and Purpose, among other outlets all across America. You can also see some of his work on the critically acclaimed NBC series, This Is Us. And finally, he may be one of the few Marines who's actually banned from a Marine Corps base. We'll get into that. And I'm very excited to introduce James Laporta on the Hazard Ground Podcast. James, welcome, man. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. Uh, you and I actually came across paths on Twitter, and social media obviously is a, is a great tool, but um, just reading some of your work and stumbling across it, I'm like, well, not only is this guy a kick-ass writer, but holy crap, he's a vet, and so I, I'd love to hear how your story ended up, because you're one of the more famous people covering the military and everything that's going on, given the climate of where we are. Uh, this should be a very riveting discussion, but start back at the beginning for me, James. How and why did you join the Marine Corps? Uh, sure. So uh, I joined the Marine Corps uh, 10 days after I graduated high school in uh, 2006. Um, uh, I, I originally had planned to go into the Navy. I wanted to be a corpsman. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> a, a Marine gunnery sergeant who, who I'm still friends with, who was uh, uh, taught like a junior ROTC, sort of got a hold of me and was like, you know, why do, what, don't go in the Navy. Go in the Marine Corps and started talking to me about, you know what it was like to be a Marine and all that kind of stuff. And so, so I switched and, and went into the Marine Corps. 
Um, and I uh, went into the infantry and, you know, at that time I was sort of, uh, uh, I, I, you know, like every sort of 18 year old, 19 year old kid, I, I, you know, uh, the country's at war, you know, um, it's only, you know, this is four or five years uh, after nine eleven. you know, so, you know, nine eleven is still, you know, impactful and, right. and the effects of nine eleven are still impactful. Um, and, um, you know, Iraq's popping off and, you know, um, uh, Fallujah had been fought in 04 and Ramadi in 05. And, you know, it was one of those, I was not ready for <laughs> to go off to college, uh, cause, uh, I, I was not a good student in high school. Um, I was just trying to like get to graduation and get on with life is sort of how I viewed my high school experience. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm going to go to the military because, uh, you know, I figured college was just like high school and I'm, I'm pretty much over <laughs> sort of <laughs> getting my education. So, you know, I went right into the infantry, uh, to go, um, you know, go overseas and, and fight in the war, you know, and that's before I knew, you know, I didn't know anything about anything about the <laughs> world or, or just, you know, um, yeah, if you ask me one question about Iraq, I couldn't even tell you. Uh, anything about it you know i just knew that uh the country has war and i needed to fight so that was sort of my mindset at the time what did your parents say uh so my dad um so my my mom and dad are, are two very different people they my mom is from macon georgia and my dad is from northern california so they're very different personalities i would say so uh my dad you know he wanted the college route he wanted me to go to college um and was trying to talk me into you know telling me you know my my my, my mom and my dad are blue collar people. My, my dad was a lifelong truck driver. My mom worked at McDonald's. So I grew up very impoverished, uh, you know, sort of a family that lives paycheck to paycheck, you know, and, and sort of, you know, what, which bill can we decide to pay on this month? You know, so no savings, you know, that sort of thing. So I grew up sort of poor. Uh, and that's why sort of my dad wanted to push college, you know, um, in terms of, sort of wanting me to have sort of that better life, you know, but I, I don't think the thing that he didn't realize was, um, uh, you know, again, I was not a strong student in high school, so I didn't really have money to go to college. So, and then my mother was on, you know, my mother was like supportive, you know, like all mothers, they're supportive of whatever their kid wants to do, you know? So, uh, uh, well, plus your mom has a military base within her within thirty miles of wherever she is in Georgia. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Yeah, Fort Benning. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Pick, that, pick yeah. and so choose whichever one: Benning, Stewart, or Gillum. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and so my, you know, what's interesting is uh, and I don't think I've ever said this uh, ever um, to anybody. Um, uh, my grandfather. Um, uh, was a World War II veteran, so he fought at D-Day, and then he uh, fought uh, during the Battle of the Bulge uh, in the Army. Wow. Uh, but my father, during Vietnam, um, was a draft dodger. Really? Yeah, it was. Um, um, and, and I now, now, you know, I'm skip ahead, but now that I've been to war and I, and I understand – a hell of a lot about the Vietnam War. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I, with you. I used you. to wrestle with that. <laughs> I used to wrestle with that a lot, you know, especially when I was thinking about first going in the military. Um, you know, how could you do? And again, a guy, a kid who doesn't know anything about Iraq, I, I knew even less about Vietnam. Um, but I used to wrestle with that, like, how could you? You know, your country's at war. Why? Why wouldn't you go off to fight? And, and I just didn't realize 
what the Vietnam War was and, yeah. and the politics around that and stuff like that. And and uh, you, you know, my my dad basically said, "Look, I didn't want to kill people that I didn't think we should have been there killing." You know, and and it, that's what it came down to for him. He's like, if uh, he said, you know, if it was like a war like my father, you know, I would have gone off to that war. Like, well, speaking about World War II, he's like, but Vietnam was not like that. Um, that's amazing. You know, and so, and, but I didn't understand it as an eighteen-year-old kid. No, you know? but you know what's funny like, when we hear about, and obviously you're covering elections as we're sitting here in you know October nineteenth uh, and, and recording this, but you know. We hear so much about draft dodger, draft dodger, and we heard it all the way back to Bill Clinton when you and I were younger. Oh, he's a draft dodger. Right. And it was such yeah. a big deal for the public. And then you go to combat and you're like, shit, I would have done the same thing. Like, well, who wants to do this? Like, this is not glorious. This is, I know we have a romantic nature of war. And when you write about it and you read about it and you see it in movies, there is a certain romanticism that tugs at the heartstrings of patriotism and Americana and all the other stuff. But it's no joke. War is hell. And, and yeah. anybody who ran from it, I don't blame them. This isn't for everybody. It's not for the, for the weak-willed or the faint of heart. This will literally tear you up inside. Yeah. And I've actually never told anybody that, that my dad was a Well, thank uh, you for sharing. Um, but, it, I mean, it, it's very truthful. But, but uh, again, it's like I didn't understand at the time. It, but once I went to war, and, once I, and, and even more so now, uh, I've studied uh, – you know, and we'll get into this, but I mean, I, as an Afghanistan veteran, I feel more of a kinship with a Vietnam veteran than I do even an Iraq veteran. Um, Interesting. Uh, and that's, and, but that, that comes after just really studying sort of what occurred both on the military side and the political side. Of sure. The no, all right. Now it makes with sense. With the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, um, and, and geez, uh, the guys who fought in Iraq, like I can only imagine, like, <laughs> you know, you know, it was interesting. I've talked to Iraq vets, um, you know, they're like, oh, you're in Afghanistan. I couldn't imagine fighting there. And I'm like, I can't imagine fighting, you know, you know, house to house, street to street. You know, yeah, like, it's, it's, I mean, Afghanistan and Iraq are completely different environments. Um, yeah, absolutely. having been in both, although my combat time was in Iraq, I, uh, I sometimes there are some days I felt like Afghanistan would have been easier, but in other ways I felt like. Iraq was more traditional combat. If you can, like, I guess the variables right. were less in Iraq. I think we, I think we were better trained for Iraq. I think we, we, we were better equipped for Iraq than we were Afghanistan. Yeah, well, uh, you in some ways you may be right because I mean it, the focus was on you know uh, military operations in urban terrain. It was very much on you know working in those sort of. I mean that's where sort of the the first idea of nation building came about you know as where afghanistan it's sort of um <laughs> it's decentralized uh mm -hmm. even in you know from region to region you know and from village to village you know uh you know so it's um those sort of nation building tools don't exactly translate that well into afghanistan you know and they didn't translate well in iraq either well, but it's hard to nation build where there are two neighbors who live less than a mile apart and never see each other through the course of their lives because the terrain is so unmanageable. Like there's not a movie or a picture that does Afghanistan's terrain justice. Unless you walk the ground and walk through it and you look and you basically sit in the bottom of a valley and look around you and see the highest mountains you could ever envision and go, holy crap, like where the hell am I? Like how, how does this structure exist on earth? There's not, there's nothing that does it justice unless you're there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, um, uh, um, I mean, We'll get into that, but um, the where we filmed uh, for This Is Us is the same set where they filmed American Sniper. And I remember when I got on set, I was like, "Wow, it's even even though even though it was supposed to look like you know um, 
you know, there's a part of the set that looks like Afghanistan, and then there's another part that looks like Iraq. I was like, wow, everything's too clean. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was the first thing that stood out. I was like, wow, there's not enough trash yeah. in the streets. I was like, and I was talking to people, I was like, hey, can we get more trash in the streets? They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, literally just trash everywhere. You know, <laughs> but makes sense. But yeah. anyways, um, to sort of bring this back on track, so um, you know, so um, uh, my mom wanted me to, you know, my mom was supportive of me going in the military. My dad was, you know, my dad again, uh, like any father, just he's worried about his son, you know. Sure, so, yeah. so I went in, uh, went into the infantry. Um, uh, my first, uh, you know, went through uh, three months of. Boot camp, and then uh, it, what, what is it like? Two months of uh, the school of infantry, and then went on to um, my first company was a uh, Lima Company, Third uh, Battalion, Eighth Marines, and so uh, we were doing. Um, uh, I was in a amphibious assault. Uh, we worked with like AAVs, so amphibious assault vehicles, and so um, you know uh, we were sort of getting um, preparing to go on a twenty second MU mm-hmm. in like two thousand seven. Uh, I didn't make that deployment. Uh, just before I was, we were set to deploy. You know, I went on, I went on ship. I was, I was on the USS Ponce and all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, I didn't make the deployment. I broke my. Uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of buddies were like messing around in the barracks, and I tripped over um, my ruck. Sack. Is that what we're calling it? Tripped over your ruck. Soul. Is that where actually well, no, did no, it no. actually happen? Uh, <laughs> well, well, this this actually happened. I, oh, okay. I, well, I mean, there was plenty of hazing uh, when I first joined the unit. Um, uh, I, I, like I said, my senior Marine, uh, Marines, they had just gotten back from my Ramadi. They did not have a good time. No, uh, lost a, you know, uh, Ramadi 05. Yeah. I was in Iraq so, at the time. Yeah. So they, and, and so here I am and I didn't realize it until l- later on, but you know, uh, I was the new guy replacing a, a guy that was no longer there. You know, that's how I look at it now. So I under, even though what their hazing was absolutely wrong, I understand it. You know, they were, you know, a bunch of new Marines showing up, replacing their friends. Yeah. You know, it's no different than the stories we hear in World War II where, you know, a new crop of soldiers would show up and and sort of the veterans of D-Day didn't really want to get to know them. One, because they hated seeing them killed. But two, it's like it was a reminder that they were replacing someone, you know, someone who was no longer there. Uh, But, yeah, when when we got the unit, uh, we got haze pretty good. I got, I got like uh, nine stitches under my left eye. Oh wow! Uh, I was, I wasn't doing uh, pull-ups or excuse me, I wasn't doing push-ups right. And uh, <laughs> a, a busted-down private got kicked me in the face. <laughs> That's very so, a few good menish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very, you know. You were, um, you were Private Willie Santiago, weren't you? Yeah, a, a little bit, a little <laughs> bit. I, I mean, I was a, uh, um, you know. Uh, well, yeah, I wasn't a strong runner, but <laughs> you know, but no, it was it was very much that that they were you know heavy drinking, you know, and just sort of they really needed um, at this time in the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps wasn't had not yet picked up on the idea that we need to get these guys help, and there was yeah. still it was still heavily that, and you know this, there was still heavily that stigma of you don't go to therapy. If you go to therapy, you are seen as weak. It is, you know, you're becoming a burden on your command. You're taking, you know, in the infantry, it's always, well, if you go to therapy, you know, you're taking a gun out of the fight. And that it's always put into those sort of perspective is like, well, if we lose you, that's one less gun that we have. 
Yeah. yeah and, you know, the, the PTSD thing, even today you talk about the stigma. And, I, you know, I've been open on other episodes before. And, you know, even I've admitted. I mean, I, I, I listen, I don't know if my if I have PTSD. I've never bothered to go get, you know, actually diagnosed a lot Same. of the symptoms and things that <laughs> a lot of the symptoms and things that are, are, are telltale symptoms of PTSD. I, I exhibit. But. You know, part of it is I don't go, one, because I don't want to go through the VA process. I've been through it once. I don't need it again. It's it's too much of a headache. But two, you know, part of me just doesn't want to feel broken. You know, like I, I don't want to feel like yeah. – it, it's not even – you know, because at this point in my military career, I'm still in. You know, I mean, I, I've hit 20 years. I'm in the National Guard still serving and because and, I, I love it and I still want to do it. But I, I – I'm not even worried about them sitting there telling me you have to retire because it's in the guard. Like you can live in the guard forever. You know, I mean, it is, it is what it is, but I, I just don't want to feel broken. You know, like I don't want to feel like there's something wrong with me and I'm afraid to almost go get that diagnosis. And because nothing has happened to me that has manifested itself in a danger to anybody near me, my family, my children or anything like that, you know, I, I feel like I have it under control, but the idea of it's not, I don't even, stigma's not even the right word, James. It's just, again, I, I broken. It, it makes me feel like I'm less of a soldier. Does that make sense? Yes, I feel the exact same way. Uh, I don't mind if other people go and get help. I want other people I to get felt, help, yeah. Uh, yeah, I felt that, you know, uh, I consider myself very fortunate. I never had, I mean, absolutely, I've had uh, uh, triggers. Uh, absolutely, I've had, you know, um, there's been moments where I've had major flashbacks. Uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit of an anxiety attack. Um, but uh, I consider myself very fortunate. I never had any issues sleeping. You know, uh, I never had any issues with you know a lot of the other symptoms that I see. I've never, uh, I, absolutely, I've experienced that sort of you know where you walk into a building and you've, you're on high alert and you got to sit at the seat that's you know your back is to the wall and so you can always you see know, the exit. Point, find out every point of egress <laughs> exactly. and entry. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely, I've had that. Yeah. But, um but I, I know guys who are really struggling, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and so I always felt and, – and not all veterans do this because, you know, the one thing that is not talked about, there are people in our community that do go and say things that – Malinger. To get, to get, to get the, uh, the VA award money. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know? I mean, and that's – and the other thing too and, is the resources are so limited. I don't want to yeah. take them away from somebody who needs more help than me. Correct. And that's how I've always felt. I felt that if I went and said, you know, and I was told, I was always told this, go and say X, Y, and Z, and that will get you up to the next sort of rating in the VA. And I always felt, I was like, but that's wrong because none of those things are happening to me. Like I'm not having trouble sleeping. I'm not having, you know, absolutely I have issues, but I'm in therapy. I go to the vet center every week. I, I still go to the vet center. That's awesome. And so I go every week. And so that's what I need. You know, I don't need this other thing. So I'm not going to go in and say X, Y, and Z just to get compensation for it because I've always felt, and even though it's ridiculous, I've always felt it's like I, well, I'm taking from someone else. Yeah. No, that's And it. I just, Spot and on. I can't, I can't morally live with myself, you know, because I know I'd be living a lie. <laughs> no, I mean, hundred <laughs> percent. I feel exactly the same way. All right. Let's get back to uh, yeah, how this so, all came about. So when do you get to your first deployment? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I, I break my hand at, at, at Lima Company, and so I actually went and um, I got um, – well, what is it called? FAPT, uh, Fleet Assistance Program. So I got fapped out to um, – uh, I actually went back to the School of Infantry. And so I trained uh, – I helped train um, students 
who were uh, fresh out of boot camp and going into uh, the infantry community. So I worked at infantry training battalion. So I worked as a uh, uh, I was a company police sergeant, but I also um, the instructors would let me help teach. So that was that was pretty cool, just to keep my own skills up as I you know my hand healed and all that kind of stuff, and it was really rewarding. And so um, I really enjoyed. Uh, I, that's where I sort of first fell in love with the idea of teaching and teaching others. I know a lot of soldiers that you know it almost becomes like you know it's like their calling in life that they get to teach others how to do something you know in the military, and that's where I sort of first fell in love with that. But um, so I get out of a uh, school of infantry. Uh, around uh, it was like 08 time frame and I go up to second marine regiment and this is all at Camp Lejeune and um, I was with a mobile training unit so we'd go around and teach other units you know um, how to do combat reports you know how to do things like that uh, and I heard that second uh, battalion eighth marines was about to go on a deployment um, to Afghanistan. So there was these rumors that, you know, uh, so at this time frame, President Obama is coming to office, George W. Bush has left, and there's talk of a surge, you know, and, and Second Battalion 8th Marines in 2009 was nowhere near uh, TO. I mean, they were, they really needed guys. They were hurting. You know, you didn't have 13-man uh, squads, you know, in some cases you had six-man squads. So they uh, so they came over to Second Regiment and and said you know uh, hey does anyone want to go to Afghanistan and I was like yeah I'll go you know and so uh, I went uh, so I volunteered I did none of the workup <laughs> for Afghanistan uh, I literally like uh, I was like yeah I'll go and um, it was like maybe two or three weeks and we deployed so I did uh, no workup for Afghanistan uh, no cultural training nothing I just went. You know, you didn't need the cultural training anyway. Yeah, it was, you know, it, I mean, I did some of my own, uh, you know, I bought a Quran, you know, and I started sort of reading through it. I bought, you know, I, I read up on, you know, Pashtu Wali to try to get a sense of who the people were. Right. Uh, so I was doing my own sort of research, you know, but um, so uh, first deployment, um, we, we head over to Afghanistan in 2009. Uh, at that point, you know, um, the, the whole idea is uh, the idea of, uh, you know, a surge had happened in Iraq. And so they're applying that same sort of idea to Afghanistan, you know. And so I was a part of President Obama's sort of surge into southern uh, Helmand province. So uh, the British had only gone so far in Helmand province. And so we were going bas basically going to leapfrog over them. And at the time, uh, which was pretty cool, uh, we conducted the largest helo insertion. Uh, since Vietnam, uh, and it was the first time we had taken that many dogs into war uh, since uh, some other battle. I can't remember which battle it was, but um, so uh, July second, two thousand nine, is when Operation uh, Kanjari uh, kicked off, which is um, I think it translates to like Strike of the Sword. Um, and so basically, the idea was uh, what was happening was uh, the Taliban was running. Uh, drugs and guns through what's called the Baram Shah, which is way south in uh, in Afghanistan. It actually it's a connecting file between Afghanistan and Pakistan, and so they would bring it up through Helmand, and then it would you know go north and then disperse out into different provinces. So our idea was to sort of cut off those supply chains, you know, and, and sort of to cut off their sort of lines of communication mm -hmm. uh, between their forces in the south and their forces in the north. 
So um, July 2nd pops off. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I've written about this day. Uh, I wrote a um, – I, I wrote about a buddy of mine uh, after I got out of the military uh, and I started sort of writing. Um, one of my first articles, um, uh, I wrote uh, I wrote uh, an article for the Washington Post and it was about um, a guy that I had served with who he had gotten out and uh, uh, taken his own life. So I was writing about him, uh, but we were in the same battle. And so, uh, so I, I had this very vivid depiction of everything that was happening and I was taking pictures like crazy just to sort of document everything. Um, uh, July 2nd, 2009, sort of, uh, (laughs) it's interesting. Everything that I've gone through over the past 10 years, I can tie to everything that started on that day, you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, we're getting on, uh, uh, what was it? 46s, 47s, you know, these, (laughs) you know, when we're going in, uh, it's, um, uh, so we're going down there, you got to, you know, you know this. It's uh, the mood on the helicopter is everybody's sort of looking at each other in their eyes, and everybody is just nervous. <laughs> um, so there was uh, no base where we were going. There was no base of anything. Uh, so our backpacks were just loaded down with just all kinds of. Uh, I mean, I had a mortar round in my backpack. <clears throat> I wasn't a mortarman. I had you know seven six two. I had five, five, six, I had grenades. I had, uh, I mean, I had to have, everybody had to have two guys help them put their backpacks on. I mean, that's just, that's just how loaded down with gear that we had, you know, um, that we couldn't even put our backpacks on ourselves. that two guys had to help us. And then it was, um, uh, the idea was, you know, as soon as the helo lands, everybody's going to jump up and run out of the helicopter. And since we don't have anything, uh, everybody had to carry two, like cases of water. So the idea was you get off the, the helo, drop the, you know, drop the water, drop your backpack and just get in the 360 and get ready to fight. I'm trying to envision this. This seems very cumbersome. It, yeah, oh yeah. It was horrible. <laughs> like it doesn't make, it was, like the, the idea of a Marine and his rifle being supplanted by a Marine in a case of water seems a little bit odd. Oh yeah, it was it was yeah. So basically, when I ran off the helo, I didn't even have a hand on my gun. It was just sort of like you know swinging and hitting hitting me in the knees. Okay. Uh, so that was basically the idea. You get off the helo, you drop these two cases of water, you drop your backpack, and you get you get into the three sixty and you fight. Uh, that was the idea because we were expecting a fight. Um, uh, <laughs> when you say expecting a fight now i'm having this i'm having so this vision well, well i'm having this vision of you all dro- dropping your stuff dropping your marks getting a 360 and all you hear is crickets and there's nothing going on uh, that's exactly what happened okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we get off the helo and, and and by the way the helos they landed in oh god it sucked they landed in a recently plowed field so our area, the way it wasn't really, it wasn't like the Korengal, you know, where the army was in, in northern Afghanistan. It was, it was all very, uh, a lot of farming, a lot of vegetation, a lot of like agricultural, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but so where we landed, uh, it was a plowed field, and so the ground was soft. And anybody who's ran on soft sand on the beach, just it, it sucks. So, <laughs> so you know, we're, we have all this gear on none of us can move we're like slow we're all trying to run but you can't run with that much gear on uh so you're just a like a slow running target um and so yeah that's a, is we throw all our gear down and it's crickets you know 
and they're like, all right, you know, and, you know, I remember just little details of like, I get into the three, you know, I get into the prone and, you know, they have those little like, um, what the hell do you call them? Like those, um, uh, like triggers or mm-hmm. not triggers, but you know, the little, like spiky things. Yeah. Like, yeah. And the grass, you know, I, I remember slamming my hand into those, you know, I was like, fuck, I already hate this place. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can I cuss? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's I no, uh, it's a podcast. You can saying, say whatever you want, man. Yeah, I was just saying, you know, fuck, I already hate this place. <laughs> you know, like, you know, um, and, and it was just god-awful hot. It was like 110 degrees out, you know, um, but nothing's happening. And then uh, uh, so we landed at 7.05. Probably a good 30 minutes went by, and then it popped off, uh, and we got into a huge gunfight. Um, and not the whole, uh, our whole company hadn't arrived yet. So there was only, I think it was only like, uh, uh, uh it was, it was almost like the beginning of, um, like we were soldiers, you know, where they only have like a, maybe a platoon platoon plus or, or two platoons there, but the whole company or the whole battalion hasn't arrived yet. So it was a little bit like that. So we still had helos coming in, bringing in the rest of the company, you know? Um, so it pops off, you know, we start getting into a firefight and I'm just completely frustrated because I'm getting shot at, uh, but I do not know where I'm getting shot at from. Everybody's getting shot at, but they're firing at such a great distance uh, that we can't even see them. You know, so I'm not firing anything, but I'm getting shot at, and that is incredibly frustrating for an infantryman. Were you scared? Uh, uh, there was a moment. Uh, the moment I got scared, I wasn't. Uh, you know, and. I, Getting shot at, I was frustrated when I started to get shot at only because I couldn't see them. And I wasn't a, a type of guy to, I'm not a spray and pray guy. Some people did do that. I was like, I'm not going to fire my weapon when I don't even know what I'm shooting at. You know, my, one of my fears, I, I really, my biggest fear was like accidentally hurting an, an innocent person. You know, so I was not going to just start firing indiscriminately, well, and, but, especially when I couldn't see what I'm shooting at, you know. To that end, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, James, is simply that, look, once you fire that first round at the enemy, yep. whether it hits or not, you're automatically a different person. And oh, I, I, forget, I forget who chronicled it, but uh, God, I wish I could remember. But the person you were before you fired that first round is now dead. You'll never be that person again. You are a different individual. And the responsibility and gravity that comes with that. I remember the first time that I got in a firefight, I actually froze for a split second before I identified the target, froze for a split second, and I'm like, oh, shit, if I do this, you know. But then you realize, okay, it's either them or me. I better start pulling the trigger quick, and the thought goes away. But I remember in a split second having that thought of, oh, my God, I'm about to fire my weapon, you know, right. and knowing things were going to be different. And it, it's it's a moment that I'll never forget. It's seminal. It's crystallizing. It, it is... It is the date of when you become a different human being. Yep. It, and it, God, you 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 sort of hit it so perfectly because um, I mean, one of the things that I struggled with when 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 I got out of the military was I was like, God, I missed that person that I was on you know July first of two thousand nine because it was a, I was a different person on July second two thousand nine and I right. didn't realize that I was a different person till much, much later. But uh the moment I got scared was uh like really scared, like holy shit, this is really real was um I was uh in the prone and and again I was still getting shot at and I'm getting f- frustrated in terms of like I can't fire back and I feel like I'm not doing anything. 
you know, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to get positive identification, you know, on, on, you know, sort of where to fight. I was a, I was a saw gunner at the time. Um, so I'm carrying uh, an M249 saw. So, uh, it was a parasol, but it's anywhere around 20 pounds, you know? And so I stand, me and my team leader, we stand up and a guy pops out and he shoots an RPG at us and, and, and we dive down and I remember, I could remember it firing at me i remember it flying over my head because i felt it flying over and then i remember i turned around and so we're in sort of like this 360 right and i remember turning around and i could see marines to my to my rear and i'm like oh my god and i could i could I, it's almost like i could i watched it was like i watched the um the rocket uh the uh, you know, uh, RPG. the, the yeah. munition, you, you know, I could, I saw it just, just like in the movies, you know, the only time I, the most realistic de- depiction was, you know, I, I had was from Black Hawk Down. It was absolutely like it. It's like, yep. you can just literally watch it. And I remember it came in and these Marines just happened to move right at, you know, the correct point and, and, and it barely missed them, you know, and, and, and exploded and it, and it blew up the, um, like the, the dirt mound, you know, that they were taking cover at. But they moved just in time. And when it blew up into a dirt mount, you know, throwing dirt and stuff in that, I was like, my first thought was, holy shit, that was like a movie. And then my second one shot was, holy fuck, that was really scary. That, that was the most scared I had been on on that day. Um, because, it, you know, the, the the bullets, you're hearing you're hearing the crack. So, so you're hearing the crack of the rounds. You know, you're hearing all that kind of stuff. But that was something I actually saw, you know. Um, and that's what that was a that was my moment of real true fear. Were any casualties sustained that first day? No. Well, uh, yes, we we had uh, we had a couple. We had tons of guys go down from just absolute heat exhaustion. We, uh, all the water that we brought with us, we ran out of water real quick. It was a, I mean, it's 110 degrees. We were fighting literally from seven in the morning. Uh, the 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 firefight. It, I mean, it didn't stop until that evening. So around five in the afternoon six in the afternoon i mean it was pretty late um uh we that was the day uh lance corporal um so we were moving in on a there's a village near where it was like a marketplace like a bazaar and we were moving in to uh, secure that bazaar which is called the minapashte market uh minapashte is on the outskirts of uh the garmshire district um and so we're moving in on that and um there's these two Marines uh, buddy rushing. And so uh, one was Corporal Tran. So he was a team leader. And then the other guy was Lance Corporal uh, Charles uh, Seth Sharp. Um, sorry. Uh, of Darysville, Georgia. And uh, uh, they're buddy rushing. And it was Sharp's turn to get up and buddy rush. And as he was going up to buddy rush, he got shot in the neck by a sniper. Um, you know, he goes down, uh, there's a whole bunch of Marines sort of around him trying, calling out his name, telling him to, you know, wake up. Uh, you know, there's a guy who, you know, sort of yells, um, uh, you know, we need an Aiden litter team, you know, up to carry him. Um, we, uh, we had, uh, Air Force, uh, PJs supporting us that day. And, and, and I didn't know what a PJ was. Um, I, you know, I, I never, you know, I didn't know much about the military structure at that point, uh, especially in other services. And, uh, uh, I remember, uh, when Sharp went down, you know, uh, his Marines are 
basically carrying his sort of lifeless body down the road. You know, he, he's just bleeding all over the place. And, uh, um, you know, we call in the Air Force PJs, and these guys are in Blackhawks. And, uh, whole, uh, I mean, I have a profound admiration for uh, Air Force Special Force uh, Special Operations and what they do, especially the PJs. I mean, these guys, <laughs> these guys are just phenomenal. I mean, uh, even the pilots, the Black Hawk came in, you know, uh, you know, like, you, you know, <laughs> I remember my squad leader, you know, um, they, they came in and I saw this Black Hawk, it went straight vertical and then just landed. And I didn't even know a, a helicopter could do that. You know, it didn't. Even, I felt like the the rotor blade was going to hit the ground. But they did this just hard combat landing, and these guys in t-shirts, you know, sort of jump out. You know, and they're like, you know, where is he? And 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 the squalor's like, hey, you guys are getting shot at. And they're like, yeah, we're fine. We got it. You know, I mean, just <laughs> we'll just run into to hell to to grab someone, and, and especially the Navy corpsman. You know, it was the first time I really saw what the medical side of the house does. And what they will do to get to someone who who needs help. Um, Sharp didn't make it, uh, so he died. Uh, so he was our first casualty. Did you know him well? No, he was in our. Uh, I, but I I've thought about him every single day uh, since that day. I didn't know him well, but I know his family really well. I'm good friends with his father. Um. So, you know, I think about him a lot. You should. I mean, there, there's no reason not to. You know, I mean, it, it's what we go through and, and, and how we survive this um, is only done together. And, and for those who didn't make it and didn't come back with us, um, the only thing we do by honoring them is keep them alive in our hearts and, and talk about them often and remember how important they were to whatever unit they were in and how much they were a part of it they were. Yeah. His, uh, his death, um, the reason I know his death so vividly is because I can watch it any time I want. We had a frontline documentary team with us and you can watch his entire death on YouTube anytime you want. Uh, his death is in, is in the first five minutes of a frontline documentary called Obama's war. And then his death is also in a, a documentary called to hell and back again, uh, which was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, I think we lost to a P <laughs> I think we lost to a P Diddy movie. Oh God. Uh, <laughs> about, about high school footballers or a high school football team. But, uh, but that, that was the thing is, is, is his death is so vivid to me. Uh, because I can see it. I can watch it anytime. And I have many, many times, you know, just to sort of relive those sort of moments, you know. Um, so uh, so he dies on July 2nd. And then, you know, that night, um, it was interesting. Uh, we uh, So we're in the prone, you know, uh, it was sort of like nobody really wants to stand up because of so much, uh, all the gunfire we were receiving. So uh, it was like, well, we're going to start digging in. <laughs> so uh, we literally, you know, busted out our e-tools and I'm in the prone position uh, digging a two-man fighting hole in the prone with a with a, with an e-tool, with a shovel. And, and I remember <laughs> – I laugh about it now because I remember learning about how to do, uh, dig a two-man fighting hole in, in, 
in you know an infantry school thinking to myself when am I ever going to use this? <laughs> like, this is so stupid. Like I'm like, what, are we going to fight in World War One? I? I remember making fun of it. You know, like like right. I was like, well, we're not going to go fight in World War One. You know, it's like, well, you're going to dig a trench. Like, you know, I thought it was more modern. You know, I thought, you know, well, we don't do this. We overwhelm the enemy. You know, it's that sort of thing. You know, we're not going to be sitting in fighting holes. And so I, I laugh about it because it's like my first day in combat. This, <laughs> the thing that I made fun of is exactly what I was doing. So. um you know, we went on sort of uh, – we didn't have a base of operations, you know, so it's like, hey, everybody is now on watch. And so uh, we didn't get sleep. You know, everybody is uh, spent a whole day fighting, and now we're digging two-man fighting holes, and now we're sitting in fighting holes, and we got to stay awake all night. And it, there was a couple of guys who uh, fired the weapon because uh, they were so exhausted and they were so deprived of sleep that, you know, they started – they shot it like they thought the trees were moving. And oh, so they started shooting at the trees, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's how just exhausted everybody was and, and everybody was dehydrated, you know? So it's just, so not even just combat itself. It was all these other elements that were playing a factor, you know? I mean, this is only day one of this here, James. This is day one. Yeah. yeah this is still day one. Yeah. So, you know, and then, and then the next day it's like, well, we're going to, we have to move. We have to sort of secure, you know, more. So, uh, Nobody got sleep that first night, and then I, I think the first night I got where they uh, where the company commander was like, "We we need to start getting these guys some sleep, or we're 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 gonna burn out," you know. Uh, so I think uh, it was um, uh, right around July third or fourth. It was one of those days. So it was maybe the day the next day or, or the day, but it was only for four hours, and nobody really got sleep. Um, I remember <laughs> I remember we pushed into this one house. And it was like, okay, it was all right. You guys are gonna get four hours of sleep, and so everybody's like, you know, taking off their gear for the first time, you know, since we landed. And uh, uh, <laughs> we go to lay down, and and EOD does a uh, does a controlled debt, and nobody bothers to tell us. Oh god! <laughs> so you know, we're all like, uh, you know, like scrambling to get our stuff on, and finally someone's like, oh, it's a it was a controlled detonation. You know, so it was just like everybody's on edge. Welcome everybody's to the suck just, was it, it, literally yeah, that moment. Just exhausted. Yeah. You Finally, know, I um, get some sleep, and a controlled dead thinks we're getting bombed. I mean, you know. yeah, exactly. So you know, we move on from there. Uh, July, I think it's July four. I, I kept a combat diary, so that's why I sort of know, sort of, the, I was writing down sort of what we did that day. July fourth or July fifth, somewhere around there, um, uh, we were. Uh, I ran up on a cobra. <laughs> scared the hell out of me. Um, I, I have a, I have a incredible fear of snakes. Um, really? growing up in Florida. Uh, yeah. Uh, Florida. Yeah. Growing up in Florida. And, uh, uh, one of the haze back when I was in third battalion, eighth Marines, one of the hazing sessions that occurred, uh, they found out that I had a fear of snakes and, uh, I had a couple senior Marines hold me down. They put a snake on my chest. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, um, but uh, so uh, no, we were doing we were in the tree line and we had to go clear out these buildings. Um, and between us and the buildings was just nothing. There was no cover, so it's like you know if we get caught, you know, running between here and there, it, it, you know, we're, we're dead. You know, if if some you know RPK or some machine gun opens up, you know. So uh, we all start. We all get up to run. You know, a good hundred uh, hundred meters, two hundred meters, something like that. And you know this, like if you, when you run, you have to run online. You can't just sort of zigzag because you're going to cut off 
the guy next to you's fires if we start getting shot at. So you have to run in a straight line. And uh, I start running, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking ahead of me, and I see this sort of like rope thing, you know, and, and it, the rope started to move. And it sort of sprung, like just like, you know, it sprung up like, like Indiana Jones. It was like the whole cobra thing. Um, and I started, <laughs> started screaming, <laughs> you know, and I started pushing to, to my left to get around the, the snake, and I pushed into my squad leader. And he's like, you know, he's, you know, the squad leader is thinking a million different things at that point. And he's like, you know, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, you know, there's a snake. He's like, I don't give a shit. Keep running. You know, um, we're trying not to get shot. You know, I don't really give a shit about a snake right now, you know. And then, you know, clearing the buildings. Uh, luckily, I never got into a firefight uh, clearing any of these buildings, thank God, because uh, these buildings are horrible. They're not um, – I don't know how it is in Iraq, but in, in Afghanistan, they're all mud huts. Yeah, clay. You know? I mean, so, a lot, there are a lot yeah, of clay buildings. Clay. Yeah, Yeah, so the door isn't like a regular door frame that we would think of. So you have to like squeeze through and some of them you have to like duck down. They're not, you know, they're not like a regular door frame. And with all that gear, you can get caught on something in the door frame, you know, which <laughs> every infantryman knows you don't get caught in the fatal frontal, you know, in the door frame, you know, so just clearing out rooms was just, you know, a nightmare, you know, cause you couldn't even do a proper room clearing because just the, the, the design of the buildings itself, you know, um, so that those were sort of the first days, you know. Uh, uh, we eventually um, we found a, what used to be a it used to be a school, and and the school was then taken over by the Taliban, and the Taliban then um, turned it into almost like a recruitment center, and then we took that over, and that is what became what is known as um, Combat Outpost Sharp. Okay, and so we named it after uh, Lance Corporal Sharp. Gotcha. And so that was established on – so we landed on July 2nd, probably around July 5th, July 6th is when we finally found a, an actual building to then set up operations and start working operations. You know, And that's when you know, engineers came in. We started you know, setting up HESCO barriers and you know, we had you know, a dirt sort of landing field. You know, but uh, that's when we started basically – now we have a permanent place of operations. And then from there, we started you know, establishing you know, OPs and – Stuff like that. Uh, At any point in time, do you ever yeah. are you ever thinking? Probably should have just went to college, like Dad said. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I did have the one thought. Uh, I did have the one thought about. Um, wow, what am I doing here? Um, you know, it was a, that thought of like, well, I volunteered to be here. I didn't have to come on this deployment. I was with a different unit. You know that, and that runs through your mind. You know, uh, absolutely. You know, but, but. But then that guilt sets in. It's like, well, why not? Why why shouldn't it be me? You know, if it's not me, it'd be someone else. You know what? You know, it's that whole idea of like, why do they have to go? It's that you know that uh, Saving Private Ryan thing. It's like, why why do they have to go? Why do I get to go? You know, mm-hmm. I have to stay here and fight just like anybody else. Sure. You know, so so you have both of those thoughts. You know, um, I'm glad you asked that. But um, but that first month of combat, uh, I didn't fire a single round. Um, and it was always I was getting shot at a lot. Uh, you know, we uh, we had a lot of walk through a lot of IED fields, um, or where they set up you know pipe bombs and stuff like that. And um, and I was getting shot at a lot, but I, I didn't fire a single round. And and until uh, July 31st, uh, 2009, is the first time I fired shots. Okay. Um, and and that was the first time I ever 
Um, that that's that's first time you ever hit the target. <laughs> hit the target. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we were going out on a patrol. Um, it was uh, you know before going out on patrol, we were already getting sort of ICOM chatter that you know uh, they were watching you know and they were setting something up and 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 you know uh, ICOM chatter is always very you know from the Afghan <laughs> from the uh, not the Afghans uh, the Taliban it, it's always very you know like. Uh, a bunch of bravado and, and very exaggerated. You know, I remember one time uh, the Taliban said over the radio, today will be the day of reckoning or something like that. And they fired one single round at the base, like a single <laughs> from, from, from like an AK-47 or something. And and that was it, you know. So it was like you couldn't take them at their word in terms of like, you know, if they were going to mount a huge attack, you know. It was like, okay. <laughs> you know, they they just they talked a lot of shit. Over the radio, sure. You know, and what you know, I get that. So do so do we. You know, um, you know, we talk a lot of shit about the Taliban. So why wouldn't they do it to us? You know, but uh, we're going out on patrol, and we're going down the south. We already know there's sort of icon chatter, and it's a pretty quiet patrol. And then uh, we had a uh, yeah, it was a um, uh, like a. It was either an RPK or it was a machine gun that yeah. they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, they opened up on us and it sort of split. So it split our squad in two in terms of like one squad sort of took cover this way and one squad, you know, uh, the the uh, the back half of the squad took, you know, uh, cover on the right. And so it sort of split our squad. And so like, okay, we'll attack this from two different – from both flanks. You know, we'll sort of move up and almost do um, team team buddy rushes. You know, so my team we went off to the left, and and then there was guys on the right, and so we went cleared out this building real quick. And I came to, uh, we had one round come in and almost hit my buddy in the face, and we started immediately laughing because he said, "Holy shit, I almost got shot in the face." We all just found that very funny, um, which is another thing that I always found sort of interesting about combat is I, I found myself laughing. <laughs> well, the moment's a levity. Scary situation. Yeah, it's, it's all you have, though. It's the only way to release because you don't say I'm scared, like I'm just going to crap myself. Like that—that's not what anybody's going to say. Right. The yeah. only way to cut the tension is to find a way to make a joke. You know, right. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, like that's that's part of the reason why I ask that whole. You know, do you regret doing this, or you know, do you feel like should have listened to dad? Because it's that moment where you go. This is a business decision I made that probably wasn't the best interest to me in, in, in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, I mean, you get to chuckle at it because you're okay on the other end. Um, right. But, you know, business decisions, as I air quote the term business decisions, are made all the time in combat. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't work out. I mean, it's just, right. you know, if he decides that he's going to set a position six inches to the right, that shot doesn't miss his face. He's dead. So, right. That's I mean, exactly right. it's all you can do with that is just chuckle. Yeah. Yeah, it, and and it's it, it always surprised me. I'm like, why am I laughing? Like, I shouldn't be <laughs> like. But it, you know, it was like it, it's exactly right. It's breaking. You know, I know no one, enough about combat now and and about the psychological state of what you're going through. And it's like that's it's all it's almost your body is reacting naturally. It's either that. It's yeah. either tell a joke or bring up something yep. so mundane that it gets your mind of what's going on. Like I had a I remember one. We were lost in Baghdad. We were in the back. We were me and another captain were in the back half of this open back Humvee, you know, uh, pulling security as we're driving through. And we were lost, and they were lost. And we started pulling up some areas, and he looks at me, he goes, you know, man, whenever I get nervous, I become Chatty Cathy. I'm like, okay, I can understand that. <laughs> and he starts asking me, he goes, you know, my wife, 
You know, she really is stuck on remodeling the kitchen. I'm sitting here thinking, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I'm looking at him quizzically going, this is the conversation you want to have right now? You know, I mean, he right. just wanted to talk about anything that wasn't, oh, shit, we're lost. There's a lot of bad guys standing right around now? us. And yeah. um, the idea of us not coming back is probably more imminent than anything else. But I figured I'd talk about my wife wanting to remodel the kitchen. I mean, that's, that's the only way you cut the moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a great story. <laughs> I mean, at the time, I'm not married, so I don't have kitchens to remodel. So I'm just like, right, yeah. what the hell do you want me to do about like, this? You know? like we got, we got, uh, sir, we have sort of a thing going on right now. <laughs> you might want to save the, the kitchen remodeling t- you know, conversation for later. But, but uh, so as a round came in, uh, almost hit um, uh, Minnick in the face. Minnick, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, uh, he, he's one of those guys that, you know, it's like uh, he didn't die in combat, but he came home and he, he was in a uh, uh, he was in a uh, ATV accident oh, wow. and rolled over and, and he was killed. You know, and it's it's like I hate those because it's like, man, you got through the worst, the it, worst part it of it to be the worst part. And it's like, you know, but um, but uh, so Minnick's no longer here. But uh, but uh, so I came to so I took up, you know, uh, security at, at sort of looking out this door. You know, it was sort of like a courtyard and I was looking out this door and this, you know, and this guy sort of popped around the corner with, with an AK and, uh, I shot, um, you know, started low and worked my way up, you know, cause I had a saw, you know, sort of walked my rounds up on him, you know, um, uh, you know, later I, I really struggled with that first one only because, um, he, he didn't seem to be, or at least from what I remember, you know, and maybe maybe it's my own memory, but, um, uh, y- you know, I, I it didn't, he didn't seem to me to be very old in terms of like, you know, maybe 17, right. 16, you know, and that's what, it, you know, and so in therapy, what I used to, I really, you know, I, I really felt, you know, that thing that I think World War Two people felt it you know like how did we come to the circumstances in life how did how did he get there and how did i get there you know uh could we have been friends under different circumstances sure. you know i really went through that and i really um let me ask it you was very interesting let, yeah let me so, ask you this because yeah. I, I, this perspective is different i don't mean to cut you off but mm-hmm. and this is just personal experience you know yeah. i'm somebody like when i would go on the range and you would do the pop-up targets on the range and you'd watch them yeah. fall like I'd be talking shit to the targets. Like I'd be I'd be cheering myself on out loud. I'm like, ah, see you later, sucker. So when the yeah. first time I acquired a target and you hit it and it falls down at a distance, it seems less personal than being able to acquire a face. Yeah. Do you feel like if you were at a distance where you didn't see the person, you would have felt or reacted differently after? I think so. I think it was because I could see him. You know, yeah, because I, I can make I, out his facial features and yeah. Obviously, absolutely. the face stays with you. Like you could pick him out of a lineup yeah. if he was still alive. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's just my experience. I I never had that close up and personal sort of experience. Yeah. Mine were always at a distance. Um, so watching a body fall and watching a target fall to me, I didn't really distinguish the two. You right. know, it was just like see you later, sucker. You know, there there was nothing yeah. personal about it. But when it's that personal, it changes the game. 
Right. Well, uh, and, and and actually, to your point, uh, I think you're right because uh, uh, there um, the next time this happened, uh, so that happened on, was July 31st. I think the next time was around August 13th. I have it written down, but it was like mid-August, and that was at a distance, and it didn't affect me. That first one really affected me, you know, and it's, uh, and and, and um, you know, because I could see all that. You know, um, but also sort of the, the one thing I wondered was, was this, um, I don't know, I, you, you go through all the what ifs, you know, was this guy really a Taliban guy or was this guy forced to fight? Because we knew that there were people that were forced to fight. The Taliban made them fight. Mm-hmm. And they even if they didn't want to, you know, was this a guy, you know, who was a farmer? You know, you know, like I was sort of like, if there was a military invading my country, what would I do? You know, so I ran through all the whole set because that that part of it I didn't know, you know, because uh, I wasn't working in intelligence or anything. So I didn't know if the guy was a Taliban or a regular person. I just knew it was that moment where like, well, it's either him or, or my friends or me, you know. And this but, is uh, the thing that makes combat so different. I've talked to people on this podcast who had the same experience as you did. They don't think twice about it because for them – it's job. It's function. Yep. It's it's yep. what I'm trained to do. There's nothing personal about it. But there are it, guys it, like you and me who process emotions differently, and everything right. is personal. Well, in the moment, yeah, I didn't think about it in the moment. It was it was muscle memory. It was just uh, oh, there he is, fire. It, it, all of this sort of came afterward, you know, gotcha. and, and it came afterward after the deployment. I didn't. Um, uh, I'll jump ahead a, a little bit, but. Um, our platoon, just before we sort of rotated out of the deployment, our platoon sergeant sort of gathered us all together. This is a guy who had been in Fallujah. And, and you know, at this point, we're all like sort of riding high. We're all about to leave, you know, this deployment where, you know, at that point, uh, we had lost 13 Marines. And what we didn't know is we we're going to lose a, another one. So it'd be 14 Marines that summer. Uh, but we're all about to leave. And now we're all, you know, combat veterans or whatever and and he said uh he what he said was always stuck you know i don't remember a lot of what my platoon sergeant said to me (laughs) but this is the one thing i do remember and 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 it was he said the hardest part is about to 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 come up the hardest part of your life is about to happen and we all were like you know we're all e3s e4s you know like what the hell are you talking about like the hardest part we just did the hardest part and we didn't understand what he was saying. And what he was saying was the, the whole coming home from war. Mm-hmm. And some of us who are coming home and then getting out of the Marine Corps is what he was talking about. We had no idea. You know, we were all like, you're full of, you're absolutely out of your mind. The hardest part is over. And, but it turns out he was absolutely right. The hardest part was not the combat. It was dealing with everything you had done and seen, you know, um, so, uh, so jumping back into July 31st, 2009, you know, I took that, uh, the guy out and then, um, we called in Cobras, Cobras showed up, you know, they started firing, uh, hellfire, uh, rockets, uh, not hellfires, maybe it was, I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember the armament on, on a Cobra, but they started firing rockets and machine guns into the building. And as they did, uh, my team sort of egressed to meet, uh, to link up with the other, uh, team of our squad and then we sort of egress back to back to base that was uh, july 31st and then you know a lot more gunfights and ieds and stuff like that mm-hmm. um until october and then i uh that 
deployment ended around November. Uh, so I think I was home by November 17th. Wow, only about four uh, months. Huh? Yeah, okay. So, yeah. So let me ask you, of the uh, other 13 guys who were killed, anyone stand out to you? Any any particular moments? Yeah, so uh, – so we yeah we lost thirteen and then when we uh, we had a what was interesting is we had a memorial service when we came back and then um, we had a memorial service uh, for you know the our, you know the thirteen fallen guys and then like three or four days later our fourteenth would die basically um, he was wounded in combat they you know they brought him to um, Walter Reed and he, or, or either Walter Reed or Germany I can't remember but he, he died at the hospital. Uh, like four days after our memorial service, after we got back, so it, it turned out to be fourteen total. Um, uh, I mean, our company—we uh, lost two as a company. Uh, my platoon did not lose any, um, fortunately. Um, so, so all all the guys that died—I mean, I know a ton about them, uh, but uh, I, I didn't meet any of them, you know. Uh, cause, cause I was, you know, I showed up, you know, like two or three weeks before we deployed. So I didn't, you know, I, I didn't go through sort of the training that the other guys went through, you know, where you sort of forge those bonds, but I know tons about them. And, and, uh, but I think out of all of them, I mean, Sharp is, is the one who has always been, um, near and dear to my heart. Cause you know, he was the first guy to die. You know, he was the first, uh, he died on my first day in combat. You know, our base is named after him, and also I can watch his death anytime I want, if I mm-hmm. wanted to. You know, so it's so that one is just very personal for a lot of reasons. You know, right? Um, so uh, and jumping ahead, you know, that's um, uh, when I started to work ten years later on This Is Us. You know, uh, the character Cassidy Sharp is uh, her her last name is named after Lance Corporal Sharp. Gotcha. So, um, so, so Sharp has always been very, you know, near and dear to my heart. Let me ask you, this is your first deployment. You know, I forget which old war philosopher said it. Uh, I know Mark Bowden has quoted it several times, but you know, asking any man to go into combat once it's easy. It's asking him to return back a second time after he's seen the horrors is the real challenge. Uh, You've survived this one, but you have another one coming. So how do you handle yeah. that, and when is it, and what's that right. like so, the second time around? Yeah, so I get back in 2009, and I immediately – so right around this time, it was – it was um, uh, I was uh, – I wanted to re-enlist. So um, I re-enlisted in the – you know, I was a guy who thought he was going to do 20 years in the Marine Corps. Uh, so I re-enlisted, and, um, you know, um, they were like, hey, do you want to go to, you know – do you want to go to Quantico or do you want to go to Paris Island? And Quantico is officer land. So I was like, well, I'll go to Paris. <laughs> I'll go down to uh, Marine Corps recruit depot, uh, Paris Island down in South Carolina. And so, um, so I PCS, uh, uh, not long after I got home in 2009, went down to Paris Island and, um, there I taught recruits how to shoot. So for two years, I became a uh, combat marksmanship and, uh, coach, and then I, I went through uh, another school and became a combat marksmanship instructor. So I, I taught coaches how to teach others how to, you know, train people how to shoot. And then, and then I taught recruits myself how to how to shoot and would teach. And then you know I requalified Marines, you know, on the rifle range. So I did that for uh, two years, uh, from you know 2010 to 2012. 
And then um, I had heard a rumor that my battalion was going back to Afghanistan. Um, so I asked, you know, my monitor, you know, hey, I want to go back to my old battalion. You know, I want to go on this deployment. So I went back to 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. Um, at this point, I'm, I think I'm like a corporal. Yeah, I'm a corporal. And uh, we gave him a squad leader. You know, um, I, I, I think I was one of one of all. And when I got back to two eight, most of the guys who were on that two thousand nine deployment had either rotated to other units or were out of the Marine Corps. So I was one of only maybe a handful of people across the battalion who was on that two thousand nine deployment. You know, so it was a very it was just a new crop of people. You know. So um, I was an infantry squad leader, had my own squad now as a corporal, you know, um, but, uh, you know, we're also working up for another deployment. Uh, Afghanistan at this point is changing. You know, uh, President Obama is already sort of talking about wanting to end the war in, in Afghanistan by uh, the end of 2014. So it's it's different. We're not doing sort of offensive operations anymore, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, – you know, the Marine Corps is really sort of wanting to expand the uh, what are called company level intelligence cells. You know, they can, you know, we want them to do more, uh, which was an idea born out of Iraq. Um, and so uh, I had gotten certified and I, I started going to college at, in Paris Island uh, and actually was doing really well <laughs> in college. I'm, I'm a much better college student than I am a high school student. There's a lack um, of focus and, back in high school. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, So I got certified in Homeland Security um, from uh, uh, like American Military University, which is like an online university uh, with a focus on counterterrorism. And my my company commander had heard about this and was like, "Uh, we're going to have you lead our uh, company level intelligence cell. And at first I was a little bit upset about it because I had lost my uh, my infantry squad and I'm an infantryman, you know. So to finally get the chance to have an infantry squad is everything, you know. Uh, so I was I was initially upset about it. Um, I was like, I'm not an intel guy, you know. Uh, but I actually loved intelligence, uh, and and you know, uh, work, you know, going up to the skiff and sort of learning all these things that I'm, you know, I would never get to see, you know, as a regular infantryman, you know. And that's when I, um, and so I became sort of obsessed because we're going back to Afghanistan and now I have access to all this information that most people don't have. So I spent hours upon hours upon hours in, in a skiff learning all I could about Afghanistan, you know, because um, at that point I, you know, it, intelligence drives operations. So my idea is like, well, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to head up this intelligence team, it's going to be the best team I can, I can think of, you know, um, so uh, I started, you know, um, started working this, you know, I had three Marines under me and we started, you know, uh, working, you know, in the intelligence cell. And so we deployed back to Afghanistan in 2013, you know, we're stationed at uh, Camp Dwyer, which is at um, Southern Afghanistan, but it's different. There's not much going on. I mean, yeah, we're still going out on patrols. Uh, I'm jumping on any patrol that I can just to, you know, keep going out. Um, cause I would also go out and, you know, do tactical questioning and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think we hit one IED, but it was a pretty 
boring <laughs> sort of deployment. You know, it was, uh, I mean, I was working a lot, you know, we ran my office. Um, uh, it was 24 hour operations, you know, day and night. And I, um, y- you know, uh, our battalion, yeah, I can say this, our battalion, um, you know, we had a couple of, uh, bad guys in our area and, and, and my whole philosophy was like, well, we're not going to just sit around and, you know, collect debriefs from Marines. We're actually going to try to go after these guys, you know, and that's what we did. Um, and I mean, that's about as much as I could say about that, but, but, uh, we did. And, and we got, uh, our, our intelligence cell team led to the killing of, um, I could say this cause it's in, uh, my battalion commander wrote it in my, um, recommendation form. Uh, we, we killed one bad guy. He was, um, a guy who was part of an IED cell laying in IEDs, you know, um, and, uh, y- you know, um, that's sort of what, what I did, but it was, it was a very, just a very different deployment than the what's 2009 the, deployment. What's the feeling of, or what's the difference between being the guy who pulls the trigger and being the guy who provides the information that leads to the guys who get to pull the trigger. I actually uh, thought that having both gave better perspective, you know, How so? like as an infantryman, I never knew when I was pulling the trigger who that other person was, you know, uh, the great thing about being an Intel was, you know, the information I was passing and, and the, and the information that was collected on, on, you know, some of the guys that we were chasing in Afghanistan, it's like, we knew exactly who they were. And I actually found comfort in that. You know, that it wasn't, mm-hmm. I, I, I really didn't, uh, I prefer it because again, I was very worried about not, I didn't want to hurt anybody who, you know, that, that was an innocent person. You know, I really, at, at that point in my career, I really felt, uh, I had a really, uh, uh, compassion for the Afghan people. I really felt bad for them. It's one of the most, and you know, this, it's one of the most impoverished countries, Mm-hmm. you know, uh, the life expectancy for, for an Afghan child is, is, uh, five years old. And that's still true today. You know, uh, usually they don't make, they have brutal winners, you know, and so, and there's just such a lack of food, you know, and, and, you know, they're growing, you know, poppy and turning it into heroin and it's just a hard life. And I felt, really felt bad for them. And then I felt even more bad for the Afghan people because they were caught between two uh, opposing forces, you know, the Taliban and us, you know, and it's just a horrible way to be brought up, you know, and all these children know nothing uh, know nothing but violence. Sure. Yeah. So I always felt bad. So I, so I actually loved knowing that, you know, the guys that we were going after were actually bad guys. Like I could like, like this is what they're doing. You know, it wasn't a, I didn't have that question of like, were they forced to fight? You know, what, what, what are their individual circumstances? Like, uh, that was all taken away. So it was actually comfort in knowing, you know, um, the hardest thing I had on that deployment was um, <sighs> I'd watched and, and we talked a little bit about, you know, having a, a flashback or anxiety. Um, hardest thing on that 2013 deployment was actually something I watched. Uh, I had um, – it is uh, – static camera, you know, a, a G boss, you know, and it's aimed down, you know, sort of like a corridor. And there is this five-year-old 
Afghan child who ran into frame and they ran out of frame and, and they, and the child, they, this, this five-year-old boy, um, or he was about five or six, somewhere around there. Uh, he realized that when he ran across the first time that he had stepped on a soft spot, you know, and all kids of that age are just curious and curious about life. I have a four-year-old. And it's just amazing to me about how many things he just questions that he asks, and he is so curious about life. Um, and so the, this kid wanders back into frame and goes to the middle, sort of middle frame, and and he notices he stepped on something, and so he starts stepping on it again, and starts stepping on it, stepping on it, stepping on it. And I know what's going to happen. He's stepping on an IED, mm. you know, and he keeps stepping on it, and he keeps stepping on it, and nothing is happening. I didn't realize till later that the reason why the IED is not going off is because he's too malnourished, which is almost – to me, it's, it's almost even more insidious <laughs> than right, the IED, yeah. you know, that, that this kid doesn't even weigh enough to set off a bomb, you know, which is just its own sort of thing. But he keeps stepping on it, keeps stepping on it because he's just curious and – and then he sort of takes his whole body weight and throws himself onto it, and he disappears. Um, and so that was 2013. Skip to about two years ago, or no, maybe about a year ago. Uh, my kid was yeah, he was three years old. He just turned four. Um, my kid loves the Lumineers. There's a song by the Lumineers called "Ho Hey." Mm-hmm. And so he loves jumping up and down to it. And, and uh, I was in the kitchen and I was just watching him dance. You know, I was, I was very, you know, I was a proud father just watching him dance and have fun, you know. And uh, he started jumping up and down and just the way he was jumping up and down, I got transported back to yeah. uh, that kid yep. jumping on the IED. And it was the weirdest thing because I never would have connected those two things. I never would have th- – because I was actually generally just in a uh, in a moment of sheer happiness of watching my kid jump around to the song. Uh, and I never would have associated that with the way he was jumping around with the way this kid jumped on an IED, you know, not knowing that it was an IED. Um, did it was your, a did real- your heart sink? Did you skip a beat? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I had to walk out of the room. Um, you, you know uh, – you know, it was it was one of those, and, and actually, that's something that um, uh, th- that that's what became part of the storyline uh, in this season of This Is Us when I started working on the TV show. Um, uh, that uh, I, I told them about. You know, we all sort of know the the regular sort of traumatic tr- triggers in terms of like fireworks going off or a car backfiring, mm-hmm. but it's these ones that come out of like left field where you would just never think that this would even be remotely related or would even remotely connect to some sort of traumatic experience. Like it, it just crushed me, <laughs> you know? Um, and so in, in, in this is us in, in the first episode, the, the show I work on um, for her, it was um, uh, uh, an IED, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, a drone strike sort of went, went bad and there were some uh, civilians killed in it. And and you know this from Iraq because it was done in Iraq and Afghanistan is that we give out condolence payments, yeah, 
which are called cert, cert payments, uh, commanders, um, something, something. But, but yeah, it, it, we give out uh, condolence payments uh, when we accidentally kill someone or maybe we accidentally kill their donkey or something like that. Um, and I knew of a story from 1-6 where um, uh, they were in a firefight. They accidentally um, hit a, a house where Afghans were taking shelter. Uh, a woman and her three kids, they were killed. And so the next day they went and paid condolence payments and, and it equaled to about uh, – it was about 1200 a person. So in This Is Us, um, she comes home. You know, uh, she's out of the Marine Corps, and her husband says, um, "You know, our hot water heater broke again. It's going to cost about twelve hundred dollars to fix it." And that—that's the trigger for her. That—that that, uh, the water heater costs more than what she paid for someone in Afghanistan's life. You know, so that's what became Crazy. the storyline. But it was—but that was born out of that that experience that I had in my kitchen where it's this, the trigger was something that you would never very sort inane. of relate. Yeah. Very, yeah. It was just out of the left field, you know, and I'm talking to other veterans. It's those ones tend to be very impactful. You know, everybody, again, everybody knows sort of the fourth of July ones, you know, or the car backfiring, you know, but it's these ones that are just, you know, like, why would that make me think of this very horrible moment, you know? Uh, so that was the, sort of the that was sort of the rough thing on the 2013 one. So I came home from 2013 Afghanistan, and um, I'm trying to reenlist again because again, my whole idea is I want to stay in for 20 years. And um, uh, but at that point, uh, the military is drawing down. You know, uh, we're trying to end the war in Afghanistan. Uh, officially, the Iraq War is over in terms of combat operations. Yeah, I was there for the end of it. <laughs> yeah. So um, so uh, anytime there is wars ending, there are massive layoffs <laughs> for lack of – I mean that's what they are. War is the biggest so, business in America. Always has been. That's right. So I got laid off. <laughs> they were uh, – they were. Uh, I fell into a horrible fiscal year in terms of like how many personnel the Marine Corps could keep in a, a specific MOS and – they were like, uh, well, thanks for your service, uh, but you need to get out, <laughs> you know, uh, and I didn't do anything wrong. You know, um, you, you know, I, had, uh, I was an expert rifleman and, and, uh, always had a first class PFT and, you know, uh, you know, never got in any trouble, no NJPs or anything. It was just one of those, like, it was a numbers game, you know? And so they're like, uh, it's time for you to get out. And so I had about a month. So I was in that limbo period where I didn't know, like, are they going to accept my reenlistment or not? And by the time I got told that I had to get out, it was only about a month. So I had a month to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life and also check out of the Marine Corps uh, completely. You know, the thing that I've been doing for the past eight years. Right. So that was uh, just, you know, an issue in itself. You know, how am I going to sort of provide, you know? for myself and my family and, you know, how am I going to, what am I, what the hell am I going to do? I thought I was going to be doing this for 20 years. Uh, it was sort of the only thing I wanted to do. Um, and so I started going to college. Uh, so I got out and I started going, I enrolled in classes at uh, the university of North Carolina, Wilmington, which is about an hour and a half drive from Jacksonville, North Carolina, which is where Camp Lejeune is. And so I always started going to classes and, and, um, in intelligence, you do a lot of writing. Uh, and so at that point I was, 
a very good writer. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe I can just do journalism. Uh, the whole idea behind journalism was um, I, I wasn't at that point ready to deal with my own experiences from war. And I wasn't ready to talk about them or, or even write them down on paper um, to even share with the public. So I was like, well, I can write about other people. <laughs> and I'll write about other people's experiences, sort of like what you're doing. Uh, you know, um, uh, I'll, I'll just hear about what other people have been through and what their experiences are like. Mm-hmm. And maybe through that, it'll be therapeutic for me. Um, it, it was good initiative, but poor judgment. Uh, I, uh, I, it, it was not therapeutic. I found myself taking on a lot of their suffering. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I event, when I first went into journalism, I covered a lot of post, you know, post-traumatic stress, what was do, what was being done in Congress, you know, legislation wise, you know, what was being done in, in sort of the medical side of the house, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, but I, I essentially just worked for free for a long time, you know, and my whole idea behind that was, you know, I'm sort of building a new career. So I started freelancing. I freelanced for um, The Washington Post and I freelanced for a couple other smaller sites um, and I freelanced for uh, The Daily Beast, um, but still not making a lot of money and still going to college. You know, uh, I was an Uber driver mm-hmm. while in college. So I was driving around kids on like a Saturday night. Uh, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina is a college town. So, you know, you can make a good bit of money on a Friday or Saturday night just driving kids around to different parties. So I was an Uber driver and doing this freelance journalism thing (laughs) and uh, going to college and, you know, raising a family, Um, you know, uh, but also dealing with my own stuff, you know, you know, and the one, the one, you know, and anybody who's going through depression or dealing with trauma, you know, it's hard when you still are dealing with stress. Uh, you know, you tend to gain a lot of weight. I did. I gained weight, you know, and that plays on your self-esteem and your self-image because you're no longer this Marine anymore. You're now a guy who can't even run a mile down the road, you know, um, and, and it's that for me, it was that thing that I think all service members and veterans struggle with when they come out. It's what is my purpose? Yep. I had lost my purpose. I'd really truly lost it. And at that point, you know, my purpose was always the purpose of the military was, it was like, I'm always serving this thing that is greater than myself or I'm, you know, I, I didn't really buy into the idea that I'm defending the country, but I felt that I was at least serving the American people and serving, you know, them, you know, that's how I sort of looked at it. Well, and also you were doing it so they didn't have to. That's right. That's right. Um, and so, uh, but I had lost that. And so the problem with, and not, I have no offense against Uber drivers. They work very hard and, and I actually enjoyed it because I got to talk to people, but um, it didn't give me that sort of thing, that, that, that purpose and drive that I was working towards something bigger than myself. And also I didn't get that sense of like, oh, I'm doing something good. I'm doing a good in terms of the community or society. You know, and that's sort of what was the other attraction about journalism is like I can keep people informed. I can let people know, you know, people who don't know anything about the military, maybe I can provide some sort of understanding to them about the military, you know. But um, 
So I started to look at journalism as almost an extension of my military service where I felt like I was still serving sort of a higher purpose, you know, and keeping people informed, you know, uh, and the, you know, this is before the age of fake news and everybody's sort of hating reporters, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, but that, that's how I looked at it was, yeah, I'll, I'll tell these stories that are not being told. You know, that's why I really appreciate what you're doing with this podcast is like, thank you. Like, this is really, you know, because this is, you know, these are, these are the sort of stories that get missed. You know, uh, war is not just one anything, you know, and so that, that what sort of gave me my purpose. And I, I worked for, I was a freelancer for a good four years before I got hired. Um, And I covered everything from PTSD. I, I covered a couple of movies, you know, I covered, uh, um, uh, I got to talk to, you know, like World War II veterans, you know, um, um, uh, I covered the Parkland shooting. I happened to be living in Parkland, Florida, oh, wow. about three miles from the high school, uh, when the Parkland shooting happened. So I covered the Parkland shooting. Um, the New York times profile is when, you know, I, um, uh, covered the Marines United scandal, uh, within the Marine Corps. Uh, so, and then last year, uh, July, which what's interesting is uh, I got hired by Newsweek and my first day was uh, July 2nd of 2018. So literally nine years to the day since my first day in combat. And then I started working for This Is Us this past January. Uh, and I've been working – I still work for the show, um, crafting this sort of veteran storyline uh, for season four of This Is Us. And what's interesting is we're filming these Afghan scenes on July, in July of 2019, 10 years to when I was all my first cyclical. day in combat. It's in all cyclical, yeah. It was very, it was a very surreal sort of connections, these little sort of connections. Well, you know, to your point, James, and, and you kind of highlighted on it, but I, let me try to encapsulate it. What you do and what we do here on the Hazard Ground, you know, as far as the stories that we tell it, it, the coverage of combat is so disproportionate to what it is. It's, it's similar in sports, right? Like we'll talk more about the hall of fame careers that make up less than 1% of the people who play a sport. Just the way we only talk about the medal of honor winners and the stories of heroism and everything else. That is less than 1% of the people who actually go to combat and do something. But yet we spend so much time and energy on those and leave out the other 99%. And the hope is that by telling some of these stories, we give some more value, not necessarily value, I don't know if it's the right word, but we give some more attention to the 99% uh, and more affection and more notoriety to it that's that's constantly being overlooked. Right. No, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, you, you know, and it, it, like I said, it, it is, you, you know, the thing about war, I mean, uh, one battle can have, 50 to a hundred different perspectives. Absolutely. On what, yes. You know, and, and, uh, you know, I, um, I mean, geez, firefights are incredibly difficult to piece back together in terms of what happened when, you know? Um, so yeah, so absolutely. That's why it's important to sort of talk to, you know, all levels, you know, cause uh, I mean, the one thing that, you know, um, as much as I, you know, I, I do, I've interviewed a couple of generals and, and, and admirals and stuff, but, uh, the further you are f- from the lowest rank, the further you are from combat. 
Yeah, I, you know, I've str- I struggle with that. I just completed Battalion Command, and I reflected in my change of command speech how my, my long regret is that I didn't spend more time with the soldiers. And in certain cases, you can't. You just have right, to work yeah. a level above so you. Busy. You're constantly yeah. looking up and working, you know, at problems at that level that y- your attention is, is taken away. And the, the, the worst thing a leader can be is remove from Jimmy and Joe and Jane down on the front line. It's, it's the worst attribute you can happen. And you get sucked in and it happens. And I understand why. But I think right. the best leaders in our, in our military constantly are being drawn down to where the rubber meets the road. Because that, right. that really will give you the, the, the best sense of what the unit needs are. Right. Well, I mean, there's that whole idea in the military right now where you have this sort of leadership through email. And, and a lot of leaders like yourself are, you know, it's like you cannot lead through email. No, you got to be out present. of your offices. Yep. I know. And it's like I know it's hard and everybody is sort of. Uh, bombarded with emails and, and, and just bombarded with work, you know, but it's like, you got to force yourself to get out of the office to effectively lead. You can't do it from there, you know? Um, and, and that's, you know, for me, it's like, you know, I work out of an office as a journalist, but I, 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 I feel the same thing. Like I'm removed from the troops. I need to, that's why, you know, uh, most journalists want, and we push to go on embeds with, with the troops. Because it, for the same reasons, it's like we're removed from the ground truth, that ground information, you know, mm-hmm. of like what are the needs at, uh, you know, for, you know, the lowest private, you know, are those needs being met or are they not being met? You know, that sort of thing. So as, uh, so as journalists, we, it's almost the same thing, you know, like uh, Syria has been popping off the last two weeks. I've looked a couple times. Is there a way I can get to Syria? <laughs> you know, to find a to see how you know because that's where our troops are. Right. You know, um, I've been wanting to do an embed in Afghanistan for a while, but they they don't do embeds in Afghanistan anymore. You know, uh, embeds were huge during the Iraq War, and I think that oh, don't was I know it? To the, <laughs> to, but that was to the betterment of the unit. Yeah, you it know, was. But um, a New York Times writer almost got us killed. <laughs> Well, yeah, that does happen. Yeah, not all journalists are. are um, and I, let me rephrase: uh, going to get a New York Times writer from the Green Zone almost got us killed. Oh, really? The only reason we were making the trip was to pick up the New York Times writer, and and we landed, we rolled over an IED and everything else, and it was uh, uh, it, 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 it was a bad day. He he got a great yeah. story out of it. I mean, he got a fantastic story out of it. But you know, right. for me, I was eight days from leaving country, and I didn't want to die eight days before leaving country. So right, exactly. um, it w- w- wasn't yeah. wasn't one of my favorite days there, to say the least. But no, no, absolutely. Um, there's a situation I know of um, with Newsweek where um, uh, Major uh, Megan McClung, uh, I think she, if I'm not mistaken, she's I think she's like the first woman uh, female officer uh, to die in Iraq. I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure, but basically she had <clears throat> she had just gotten back. Um, she had dropped off like um, you are uh, correct. She was she was the first female marine to be killed in combat. Yeah, she so she dropped off uh, uh, Oliver North and uh, his Fox News team, uh, and uh, they were going. Um, Newsweek was preparing to go out, and she took the place of her gunnery sergeant. She was like, I, "I'll take him out. I got it." Right, and so she gets in the Humvee and replaces you know um, the Marine blower, and they're taking Newsweek out um, to show them you know around Iraq or whatever, and they, they hit an IED and she was killed. Uh, yeah. So it was, you know, it was one of those sort of things, you know, um, 
you know, um, but just shows you the sort of the bravery of our, 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 our men in service and then the bravery of journalists just to bring news to yeah. the American people, you know, um, and unfortunately, it doesn't always work out. Mm-hmm. You know, the news is sort of the violence of the day. Yeah. Well, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. Um, let me ask yeah. you a, uh, an anecdotal question or an anecdotal story. You've talked about this as us and. I think the work there is fantastic. But um, as a former Marine, you would think that you would be welcome on any Marine base in America. But as I've read, that is currently not the case. You are not welcome at Camp Lejeune. I am. Yeah, that is true. Um, so uh, I am uh, <laughs> I'm permanently banned from stepping foot onto Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune after uh, – I served uh, after serving there honorably. I, uh, you know, I was honorably discharged. I, I don't have a court martial. I don't have an NJP. I never, I never got in trouble. Um, but yeah, I can't step foot on Camp Lejeune. Um, what that was was um, uh, in when I was at Paris Island, I had a commanding officer. His name was Colonel uh, Dan Wilson. Uh, Dan Wilson was a Mustang Marine. He is, um, you know, he. Had, um, worked all the way up to staff sergeant, then went to college, got his degree. And, you know, now he's a full bird colonel. And, uh, you know, I think he had like 36 years in at that point, but he was, a uh, for a guy that was six, two, six, three, and about 200 pounds. Um, very hospitable, very, uh, someone who, uh, you never felt that you were being looked down upon. Regardless of what your rank was, he was a sort of a commanding officer that would go around and learn everybody's name. Like that, that was sort of his first priority. I want to know everybody's name in my battalion. Very personal, and, and would give his cell phone number to anybody in the battalion. You know, uh, and and to me, I had never had a commanding officer like that. Um, you know, uh, especially someone who was also from the infantry. You know, and so I sort of, um, I mean. In, in, in that my time in Paris Island at 2010, 2012, I mean, I, this guy was Jesus to me. I really like, I, I would tell people that's the kind of Marine I want to be, you know, the, in terms of, uh, uh, him as a Marine officer and how he led, uh, I get out of the Marine Corps. I stay in touch with him. Uh, I'm freelancing for the Washington post at this point and, and the daily beast. Uh, and I get a press release that comes out from Camp Lejeune. And he has been charged with sexually assaulting a six-year-old. Oh, Jesus. And my whole world was like, what the hell? Like, like what, what is this about? Like, it came out of nowhere, you know? Because um, uh, at that point, he was the chief of staff for 2nd Marine Division at Camp Lejeune. And so um, – you know, I'm like, you know, what – I'm just sort of dumbfounded, you know. And so um, he he's not put in pretrial confinement. So I meet with him at Mission Barbecue um, and we have a meeting and I'm like, you know, I'm like, what is going on, you know. And he's – at this point, he, um, he's he got a severe alcohol problem and he's been off. He's going through a withdrawal. So his hands are shaking. You know, he's – he, he doesn't look good, you know. Um, and I'm like, is any of this true? And he's like, no, it, you know, it, you know, he denies it 
uh, you know, he denies a story. Absolutely. That it's not true. And I sort of, I was like, okay, so walk me through the story. And so he's telling the story and the story to me, it's like, I had that sort of spidey sense go up, you know, like, like, like there's something's not adding up, you know, like there's something not jiving in terms of how, how he's telling the story. And so I go back and I'm wrestling like, is there a con- can I is this something I should look into as a journalist? Am I, am I do I have too much of a bias in terms of my past experience with him? You know, uh, if I did a story, would it would it you know it would just paint him in a it wouldn't be fair to the story. Like it would you know it would be uh, it would paint him in a in a in a in a good light because you know he was my commanding officer at one point. You know, was there this sort of conflict of interest? But also, so that, that was running through my head. And then also it's like, I'm the only one who sort of knows all the players in this story. You know, uh, I'm out of the Marine Corps, but I'm still living in Jacksonville, North Carolina. You know, uh, and so uh, I made the decision that what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring in my my professor who actually taught me journalism. And they're, I'm going to bring them in on, on – we're going to do a story. And I'm going to bring him in. And we're going to look into this. And my professor will be there to check me on any biases that I have, you know, any perceived, you know what I'm saying? Makes sense, yeah. Um, for this conflict of interest. But it's like this is something that needs to be looked into. I mean, this is a guy, again, 36 years in the Marine Corps, you know. So we spend the next nine months investigating the story. And we collected a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, we got NCIS and in, in, in interrogation tapes, we got thousands of text messages. We got we got a whole bunch of you know, stuff. Um, the Marine Corps didn't know we were looking into the story. Uh, the way the Marine the military works in terms of journalism is anytime you want to interview someone for the military, you have to go through public affairs. And I, up until that point, I always had I had always gone through public affairs. The problem with this story is both the victims in the story. And uh, Colonel Wilson and, and his camp, nobody uh, – they both – both camps agreed on two things, and they didn't even know they agreed on two things. One was there was a huge distrust of, of NCIS, uh, and then the other was there was a huge distrust of public affairs, that public affairs was going to attempt to sweep this under the rug. And so it was like, okay, there's a huge distrust of public affairs from both sides. If I go through public affairs, one, they're going to say they're not going to give me an interview. And two, if by some wild chance that they give me an interview with either party, um, they're not the, the, the interviewee is not going to be forthcoming because there's this person in the room that they don't trust. <laughs> you know? Sure. So, so I didn't go through public affairs. I, I interviewed Colonel Wilson. I interviewed all the victims. We interviewed everybody several times, you know, um, over over the course of our nine month investigation. We, um, but the Marine Corps found out, uh, so they didn't like that I skirted public affairs. And then uh, Colonel Wilson, um, about uh, two or three months after he was charged with sexually assaulting a six year old, he was charged again with uh, alleged sexual assault on a forty nine year old. Those those charges were dropped at trial. Uh, but once he was charged with that, he was put into pretrial confinement. And so I went and visited him at the brig. 
the Marine Corps didn't like that. So they banned me. <laughs> they uh, so they they banned me from base uh, permanently. I thought it was going to be sort of you know like a six month sort of thing, but they permanently banned me. Uh, I got to get around to appealing it one day. <laughs> I got to get around to it. <laughs> yeah, well, it, well, I don't live in I don't live in Jacksonville, North Carolina anymore, and it doesn't really affect my coverage. So it's like you know what I'm saying. Like me sure, not having yeah. access to a base doesn't really you know. Uh, the only thing that bothered me about being banned is um you know in in their in their banning of me they said that i was that i was a security risk which was absolutely ridiculous but the thing that really bothered me was uh the memorial to the guys that we lost in 2009 uh is at 2nd Eighth marines and every year on july 2nd i used to go i would buy 14 roses yellow roses and i'd go to the memorial uh even after i got out and i would put them on the memorial and just spend some time at the memorial at the battalion. So once I got banned, I wasn't able to do that. Yeah, that was that the one sucks. thing that really bothered. Yeah. That was the one thing that really bothered me about it. But anyways, we we investigated it for nine months. Uh, he was convicted uh, by a, a jury of four general officers and five colonels. I think he was given five and a half years in prison. Uh, and then our story dropped the day after he was convicted. That's it. He only got five and a half years. Yeah. Uh, skip to this year. The appellant courts overturned the convic- conviction. Really? Yeah. So uh, what a lot of people don't know about. Uh, he was tried in the military between- court, obviously, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So um, and, and one of the issues was he had such seniority, even as a colonel, 36 years in. It was hard to find uh, general officers and colonels who were both, you know, had availability and, you know, was a peer, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? So even like jury selection was a little bit difficult. Um, But uh, so, but the the main difference, uh, what a lot of people don't know about the differences between civilian court, military court is in civilian court, um, the way you have court cases overturned is that there has to be sort of a misstep in the judicial process where not all the rights were afforded to you under the law, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that distinction does not exist in the military. In the military, the appellant courts can overturn uh, a conviction simply because they don't like it. There doesn't have to be, or they feel that the evidence wasn't Sufficient, evaluated yeah, properly. Yeah. There doesn't have to be a a judicial misstep. So uh, earlier this year, um, three a uh, three court uh, 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 three judges on the appellant courts who are all um, I think they're uh, either they're lieutenant commanders or commanders because mm-hmm. they're um, uh, so they're all O fives uh, overturned the guilty conviction uh, that was decided by four generals and five colonels. So uh, his conviction was overturned. Stuff like that burns me up, man. So so you know um, so uh, he does have some. Uh, some additional pending charges for conduct of becoming and some behavioral things that happened when he was stationed in Okinawa. He actually got kicked out of Okinawa. Um, excuse me, not Okinawa. He got kicked out of, um, he was stationed in Okinawa um, uh, and was sent down to Australia for like, for uh, to be a liaison in Australia and got kicked out 10 days later for um, 
conduct that was not becoming, you know, um, gotcha. uh, and what is perceived as sexual harassment. Um, so those charges are still pending. And so we're still sort of waiting, you know, it, are those charges going to go, you know, cause the, uh, the appellate courts decided, in, uh, that he has to be retried. So it's like, are we going to, is the convening authority at Camp Lejeune going to, you know, hold another hearing based on, on the Okinawa stuff, or are they just going to drop it and let this guy get out of the mil- military? So, oh, so that, but, but that's the whole reason why I can't. Well, you're banned from Camp Lejeune. Lejeune. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, it's not just uh, I was doing you know something stupid. There, there was actually a, um, a legitimate reason. Legitimate reason. Let me yeah. kind of let me kind of put a bow on some of this. I mean, you're an award-winning journalist. You've covered things all over the world and all over the country, specifically military-related Department of Defense. When you write about the military now, and you write about where we are, uh, and I know this is a broad question, but are you disenfranchised? Do you feel good about the military and where we are, or, or are we kind of in a place now that? We were only there because of 20 years of war or we're there because we're lacking in values. I mean, how do you and it goes back to that separating sort of your bias. How do you separate yourself from the journalist from the former Marine? Right. Um, so I'm still a person who believes in service to country. You know, uh, uh, that is, you know, uh, anybody who wants to go in the military, I still support that. You know, I'm not sort of like I'm not an anti-war sort of person. You know, um, I, I would prefer us not to go to war. Um, but you know, I'm not the uh, person who, you know, would look down upon anybody who wants to go serve because, um, uh, there is still that part of me where, if, you know, they gave me the opportunity. I'd, I'd probably go back in the uniform tomorrow. There, there is that part of me and, and I can't deny that. Um, but, uh, I'm no longer, uh, a, a, a bright eyed private and, and, and just sort of ignorant of the world. Uh, you can't unsee what you've seen, you know, um, uh, through my experiences in Afghanistan and working in the intelligence community and working, you know, for the past four or five years as, as a journalist, you know, the curtain gets drawn back, you know, and you see, you know, the man behind the curtain, you know, in Wizard of Oz and you can't unsee that. So, um, so anytime I'm reporting on a story now, it always for me, uh, starts at the ground level. You know, what are the troops on the ground? How do they feel about it? You know, um, and how and how are policies being translated down to them from the top level? And there's no other story that I that I have to check my biases more on than Afghanistan because of my experiences there. And it's so personal. Uh, just and, and and it's the hardest for a lot of reasons. It's the hardest because it's the, it's our longest war. It's longest because a lot of the rhetoric that still is used today has been being has been used for years uh regardless of political party you know um you know the whole you know we're uh we're all sort of familiar with the we're turning a corner in afghanistan or we're making progress in afghanistan who we're all sort of familiar with that we were all familiar with presidents coming in saying they're going to withdraw and no withdrawal happens you know so so it's the one story where i i have to remain as unbiased and objective as possible and i really have to keep my own experiences in check uh and and that's where i really have to rely on my fellow reporters and and even my editors at newsweek uh because it's not just a story it's very personal as it should be the reason why i really and the reason why uh uh 
and usually, you know, it's, um, the, the story that I despise the most is the story that I have to do every single time is when a new KIA comes in. Yeah. It destroys me. It really does. I lose sleep over it. I don't get to sleep that night. Um, because usually what happens is, uh, I'll find out who, uh, just cause I have good sort of sourcing. I'll find out who it is way before the defense department even announces that there is another KIA. And so I'll have the name and I'll have what unit they are, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and I never, it's a personal policy. I'll never, I have two personal policies. One, I will never publish before the defense department does. Cause I have a fear that, uh, the family, uh, family member is going to learn about the death of one of their loved ones from my news story versus the defense department. So I never publish before the defense department does. That's my own personal policy. My other personal policy is when there is a KIA, I never will reach out to the family. Uh, the last thing they need is a reporter reaching out for a comment or a quote when they've just been given the worst news of their life. Mm, yeah. Not all reporters believe in that. A lot of editors don't believe in that. They're like, if someone is killed, you go get that quote. You go get that, you know, you go get that soundbite or whatever from the family. Uh, leave them alone. You can, it can wait. Uh, you don't need it. You can still tell the story without, you know, asking the dumb question of how do you feel right now? How do you think they feel? Their life has just been destroyed, you know? Um, so I don't reach out to the family. I'll try to find maybe a friend, you know, of the family or something like that, but I never reach out to the, the immediate family. Because uh, they don't need to hear from me as a reporter, uh, they gotta, you know, they've just been handed the most devastating news. So those are my personal uh, sort of things. Um, and but the reason those stories kill me is because I almost feel like you know that I'm writing an, ob an obituary and I'm not writing just a regular story. And so I spend a ton of time going through their Facebooks and to, to, to try to get a sense of who they were. So I can write a little bit more about the person than just, oh, this is another person that died today, you know? So I can just sort of, you know, they this is who they were when they were not in war. You know, this is what they did right. as, as a father or as a mother. Provide you know, some depth um, and context. You know what I'm saying? Besides yeah, just, the, you know, uh, because um, that's what, you know, I, I did a story on, uh, and actually I won an award for this. Um, when Ryan Owens was killed, uh, Ryan Owens was a, a SEAL Team 6 member. He was, he's the first uh, service member to die um, under President Trump. So he died in January of 2017. Um, but what was interesting was is that you didn't know uh, – the story was just that he was the first person killed under, under President Trump and he became a, sort of a political footnote. In terms of whether or not you agreed or disagreed with President Trump's policies, you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So the person themselves became missing in their own death, um, and that really bothered me. And so I spent months trying to 
to convince his family and his brother, please let me do a story about him. I don't care. You know, it's not going, it's not a political story. I just want to know who he is. And I finally convinced his brother to talk to me. His brother is also a Navy SEAL. And what I learned was when he died, his brother was overseas as well doing things. And he actually flew with his brother in a coffin on the C-17 flight back to Dover. Very similar to uh, Pat Tillman and Richard Tillman. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Or Kevin uh, Tillman, rather. I can only imagine flying with your own, you know, your own flesh and blood on on that flight back, you know. Uh, they're both Navy, you know, uh, Ryan was a Navy SEAL and his brother John is a, is a former Navy SEAL, you know. Um, and so the story was just about who Ryan was as a person, you know, uh, y- y- you know, inside the military and outside the military, you know. So uh, so those stories really kill me. Uh, and And that's when... And those are the stories that I think about anytime I'm asking some sort of admiral or general about what are we doing in Afghanistan or a politician. It always starts with the death toll, you know, yeah. <laughs> because that's the result of any policy or any strategic plan or any military plan. You know, that that's the consequence, you know. Uh, and so it's those stories that I really have to check my bias on uh, more than anything. Makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I mean yeah. – James, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation. I think this is our longest podcast to date, uh, as far as length is concerned. I mean, I, I could talk. No, not at all. I mean, listen, it's it's flown by. I I could talk to you for hours more. I've got a thousand more questions just about media and covering this and all the other stuff, and of course, what the chaos in Washington that is. I mean, I'm sure we could talk for hours more. But certainly, your particular story. Uh, you tell it with passion, you tell it with love, and, and it obviously still is a part of the fabric of who you are and, and the work that you do on a daily basis. But I, I just can't thank you enough for you know, being so open and honest with us and, and really just uh, you know, doing what you do well, and that's tell a great story. I, I, I really appreciate you, you listening and, and doing this for, for not just me but for, for other veterans. I mean it's really um, – like I said, it, it's in many ways it's like you're an historian. And, you know, I just think about all the stories that we have not heard because the one, they ha- the veteran hasn't gotten the opportunity to tell it or two, you know, they're no longer with us. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity that you've, you've let me just sort of openly speak. And hopefully I didn't take up too many – hopefully this didn't get too dark or too boring. No, not at all. We, we, we've hit every range of emotions possible on this podcast in one way or another. And thank you for a very high compliment. Uh, the fact that we are chronicling history is something that we don't talk about enough uh, or we don't even give enough credence to. But it's essentially what we do, and, and you're a big part of that, and your story is part of that. So, James Laporta, thank you for everything, and thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.